Welcome to our second episode of Many Body Physics podcast, in which Alex and I discuss with Fabian Gerst, a theorist at Ludwig Maximilian University Munich. He aims at understanding some of the most mysterious materials found in the last decades, including high temperature superconductors, which can conduct electricity without loss or the need for cooling them down to near absolute zero. He works extremely closely with experiments performing analog quantum computation where atoms trapped with laser light simulate electrons moving around in solids. At 30 years old, Fabian's just started his own research group with one of the most prestigious research grants from the European Union. We hope you will enjoy his highly infectious enthusiasm for all things quantum. Hi Fabian, uh, great to have you here this morning. Hi, good morning. Hey Fabian, great to have you here. To kick us off, do you think that you could maybe tell us a bit about, you You recently got a European Research Council grant, which is a pretty major thing, for simulating ultra-cold correlated quantum matter, new microscopic paradigms. Could you clarify um, for us a little bit what's in that title and what you're hoping to do? Yes, of course. Um... Yeah, so indeed that that basically defines uh, my research for the next few years, um, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. So what I want to do there is study very strongly correlated uh, quantum matter. Um, the types of systems I have in mind are always systems that you can uh, realize uh, with uh, quantum simulators, hopefully, that could be uh, some synthetic systems that behave quantum mechanically, uh, like ultra-cold atoms, for example, um, and... The goal is to really unravel what um, are the physical mechanisms that uh, determine how strongly correlated quantum systems behave. Um, so there, there's a big motivation um, because there's a relation to high temperature superconductivity. Um, so that's um, a phenomenon that we all would like to see in uh, day-to-day applications, maybe even have uh, superconductors, that means, you know, lossless um, current transport without any resistivity at room temperature. Um, today, that's a dream that's not been realized, but it's um, not clear um, if whether or not there are fundamental reasons that would forbid such a, a phenomenon. And so the big, big, big picture, of course, that we want to um, search for the answers to such questions. Um, these questions are hard. They, you know, they're out there since uh, um, more than uh, 30 years. Um, and so, you know, uh, that, that means we have to go step by step, but these quantum simulators really provide a new uh, platform and opportunity uh, to do so. Um, and yeah, on a big, big scale, that's the content of that uh, research grant. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, thank you. Could you could you explain a little bit more in detail what you mean when you say strongly correlated quantum matter or strongly correlated system? What does it mean to be strongly correlated? Yes, of course. So um, first of all, it just means that um, interactions between the um, individual particles um, play a dominant role. Okay, so that's in simple terms. (laughs) Now, the types of particles we should think of um, in real materials would be electrons um, hopping uh, between the different um, nuclear cores, if if you wish. Um, and as they do so, um, 
they basically meet each other, and because the electrons repel each other, they have a very strong repulsive interactions. Um, and in some materials, in many materials, actually, these interactions um, in the end do not lead to such drastic effects. Uh, but in these strongly correlated quantum matter uh, materials, um, these interactions ef effects really dominate everything. Um, so basically, you get behavior that um, you can no longer describe by assuming that they would be moving just freely. Instead, you get qualitatively different um, behaviors. And uh, yeah, that's in a, in a nutshell. Of course, one can go in more details, but... Um, mm. could, could you maybe also clarify what you mean with quantum simulators? Right, yeah. So um, the idea is basically goes back to Richard Feynman. Um, and so um, he basically realized that all the machines we're building, like computers, um, what we're doing is basically we're building um, physical systems in a very controlled setting um, with uh, the goal to mimic behavior um, that other physical systems would describe. And the fact that we can draw such analogies between one and the other physical system uh, is due to our deep understanding of the laws of nature, of course. Um, and so Richard Feynman basically realized and suggested, he was the first to suggest this really, um, that we can play the same tricks possibly with quantum systems. So we can, if we have um, one type of quantum system that uh, behaves in a, that we can control very well, yeah, then uh, we can basically um, use this and, and put it together in such a way that it mimics the behavior we would expect of another system. Um, and... Um, then, I mean, you know, the, the basic idea goes back to the stupidest models um, you can think of, of, of um, wooden um, balls going around another wooden ball to simulate the sun system or the solar system. And then, but people, you know, even the old, the ancient Greeks became much more advanced in having mechanical models like this, which were actually had predictive power. And these days we put together quantum mechanical um, particles in a controlled way that uh, we have learned how to control in a lab. Um, with the goal that they would mimic the behavior of actual electrons in a solid, let's say. Right, cool. Thank you very much. Um, I guess maybe what some of our listeners have uh, have heard about before is the term quantum computers. And, and I don't know, what I experience sometimes is that people get a bit confused with all of these different quantum terms like quantum computers, quantum simulators, and so on. So... Could you maybe explain what the difference is between a quantum computer and a quantum simulator? And um, yeah, what's maybe the difference in, in the stage of development? Yes, yes. Um, so basically, like, like a real computer, um, the, um, today we use um, Turing machines or digital machines um, that basically only give out ones and zeros. Um, and... That means we have huge flexibility. We can use our laptop computer to run all types of, of problems um, because we digitalize them. We bring them in this universal 1010 form uh, and then we can basically um, run them on an abstract level if you wish. Um, so this is a computer. And in the same way, the quantum computer is, is um, working on an abstract level which deals with uh, zeros and ones and treats them quantum mechanically if you wish. Uh, and in contrast, the quantum simulator would be um, a an actual hardware that's designed to solve just one specific task. So you don't um, put the problem onto this abstract 0, 1, 0 uh, level, but instead you really design it in the beginning to solve a particular task. Um, and um, 
Yeah, so that's the working principle. Of course, the quantum simulators are le less flexible um, because they only solve um, specifically design designed tasks. Um, sometimes they're more efficient because you you know you um, design them to do exactly what they want uh, should do. Um, but also, there's typically um, in in the physics uh, settings that we're talking about here, the types of questions we're asking are also a bit different. So. In a quantum computer, we care about details. If one zero is di different um, than we want it to be, um, it would be a typical error, then we want to, to correct this error and we really care about um, having such an error. That's a bad thing. In a quantum simulator, it's not so bad because we basically um, were looking more for um, qualitative behavior. So if a little detail is not as we wanted it to be, that doesn't really matter because we only want to understand a broader uh, phenomenon, basically. Um, and that gives you, um, of course, um, a lot more flexibility in terms of um, what types of errors you may make. Um, and that brings me now to this to your second question about um, the stage uh, of development. So quantum simulators um, are really being actively used and they've been um, built since, well, I would say one of the first was probably when the first Bose-Einstein condensate uh, was realized by the Wolfgang Kettle, for example. And... Um, so in these systems, um, they got more and more refined. So nowadays they can look at much more details um, and basically um, see, see more and more and get closer to even finding every single error. They, they don't yet, but they're getting closer. Um, and in the quantum computer world, on the other hand, um, development is also rapid, but there is still room for improvement because the individual qubits um, still... Um, cannot store quantum information uh, as long as we wish to. And also the, the gates that would basically um, you know, mo modify the, uh, the qubits, um, um, they are also not working perfectly enough. So they're already extremely good. It's amazing how much progress has been made, um, but they're not um, as good as we need them to be to really perform full-blown you know, digital um, quantum uh, computation. Um, maybe a last common one should make is that every quantum computer is always also a quantum simulator. So uh, when you have a bad quantum computer, you can also use it for certain, at least, quantum simulation uh, purposes. And with this regard, uh, one can really say that today's um, quantum computers, um, you know, the ones that are being built, we should really think of them as pretty good quantum simulators with uh, some room for improvement to really make them full-blown um, digital computers that do not really make errors. Well, that was really interesting. Um, and do, do you think, so for you, it sounds like you maybe uh, have done more, some more research on quantum simulation in, in general. And would you say that your main, your main topic within that is kind of the Hubbard model? And, and if so, then kind of what result in your research have you been the most amazed about or is there something within that that you've um yeah that's really astounded you or is that yet to come <laughs> yes indeed so um lots of my research has focused on especially recently on the hubbard model and especially the fermionic hubbard model um so maybe to just put this into context right the hubbard model is you can think of it as a um, egg cartoon type of model you have um, basically lattice sites and that's the, the you know the positions of the eggs in the egg cartoon and then um, you have atoms and they hop between these minima and the egg cartoon, if you wish, um, except these are now quantum mechanical objects, of course, these atoms, and everything is you know, working on super small scales. 
in, in cold atoms. And um, so this type of uh, systems, um, those are the systems I'm really super interested in. Now, we also know that or many people believe at least that these types of uh, models can capture many of the key properties of high temperature superconductivity. Um, and so in that case, of course, these models would not model actual atoms moving between these uh, synthesized egg cartoon landscapes, but it would really be um, the electrons hopping, as we said before, between the nuclei. Um, okay, and so, but that's the reason we're interested in this model. And um, now there are, of course, many, many um, open uh, problems. Um, there are many regimes. So you can tune temperature. You can tune the number of particles you have inside your system. Um, and that's actually the hardest part, tuning the number of particles. Um, so our starting point is typically when there's um, one particle per site. Um, and then it turns out these particles also have a spin. It's basically um, if, how they rotate around themselves If you in the simplest picture. But you, for now, we can think of them as two colors. So you can think of them being red and blue. And so um, it turns out the pattern, if there's one particle per site, is uh, the pattern they prefer is that there's a checkerboard. You always have red on one sublattice and um, blue on the other sublattice, like a, like a chessboard. Um, okay, and now um, what, what I'm uh, studying a lot is what happens if you put a single or remove a single atom. Um, and then you basically get um, a hole, and it turns out these holes are the charge carriers of high-temperature superconductivity. Uh, and so, of course, there's a huge um, desire to understand the properties of these charge carriers, um, and that... To some extent, it has, they have been understood since um, the discovery, of, more or less, um, uh, of high-temperature superconductivity. So the um, end of the 1980s, beginning of 1990s, um, lots of important work has been done. But amazingly, we still discover new um, properties of these charge carriers, um, even today. Um, so let me talk about one specific example, and that's um, a very recent work we, we did, where we looked for um, rotational excitations of these charge carriers. And so what do I mean by this? Well, uh, first, if you look at them, uh, they just seem like point-like particles, just a single hole. Uh, but it turns out, um, because of these strong interactions in the system, they actually, um, the, you know, you can understand them as being formed by two emergent um, constituents. Um, and these two constituents are connected by, a, we call it a string of, of very highly um, correlated uh, particles in between. And in the end, the, the story is that the string can rotate around itself. And uh, there's actually strong analogies that we can draw to high-energy physics. So if you look at, uh, you know, what our atoms are composed of, you will find their atomic nuclei. And these nuclei we, we now know are composed of quarks. Um, so the nucleons are composed of actually three quarks. There are other simpler elementary particles we call mesons, and those are constituted, uh, constituted, Nick, constituted by uh, two quarks. And um, in, in, there are also excitations of these mesons, namely if these two quarks rotate around each other. And exactly these types of rotation states uh, we recently discovered in um, numerics, at least, um, for these single charge carriers. Um, and this has strong implications because now there seem to be um, more analogies possible with um, particle and high-energy physics. Um, and that really makes us very hopeful that uh, more progress can be made in the future. Um, to understand what happens if you put more of these charge carriers in, basically. Cool, that sounds very exciting. Um, 
And and so do you so when you were saying the Hubbard model has some relation to our high TC superconductivity, um, then sort of what you hear quite a lot is people saying that despite the fact that people have been working on this, uh, trying to explain high TC superconductivity for a long time now, and they've come up with a Hubbard model, which is supposed to be a rather simple model. But still, you hear that people say that high TC superconductivity is not quite understood yet. So, and it, when when you are talking, it seems like there's actually a lot understood already. But so, what do people mean with that it's not understood fully yet? And how do you think can be progress made? And when when would be the point when people say, "Oh, yeah, now now we got it." Yeah, I mean, that's there's a huge debate about that for sure. Um, I think. Um... There's not I, my my point of view would be that there's a, a big unifying theme is, that's what's really lacking um, that all researchers in the field agree on where you know we would say that's the one theme that determines the phase diagram of these systems. Beyond that, I think um, many people believe that they understand many um, parts of um, high temperature superconductivity, and that's true, I believe. So, um, so it turns out the phase diagram of these materials is extremely rich. It has many um, exotic phases, and um, some of them are definitely well understood. Um, for example, if there's one atom or one particle per lattice site. Um, and other regimes, well, they're still up to debate. And um, so, for example, people also do numerics, right? And, um, of course, there's been huge advances in the numerics um, that can be done over the past uh, 10, 20 years. Um, and that means nowadays um, we can calculate um, some quantities that were totally out of reach, um, let's say, 30 years ago. Uh, and of course, this has added to our understanding. And so this has made it, th that's one of the examples where, um, you know, because of which we believe that this Hubbard model that we talked about um, is indeed a good candidate because we numerically we know it captures many of these exotic properties. Um, so in that sense, you know, lots of understanding has been gained. Um, it's also, one should also say that uh, many people think that uh, the high temperature superconducting phase itself, so the superconductivity, uh, is not even the most exotic um, part of this um, material. So um, there's a, some understanding as to what the properties are of these superconductors, um, and there are, we have theories we, we can at least phenomenologically describe extremely well um, what's going on. And um, the the phases that are around the superconductivity, um, those are really the, the most difficult ones. And also, of course, then the question comes up, how are these exotic metallic phases that exist there, uh, how are they related to superconductivity? And that's really um, a totally open question. Um, Now, what would have to happen for someone to say, or for everyone to say, you know, now it's clear, we've understood it. I don't know. It's, um, I think it really a new paradigm would have to come. I mean, if, and it's actually amazing if you look at the history of BCS superconductivity, so what we would now call conventional superconductors, um, the same story was true there. It was many um, um, years and tens of years, it was um, really not understood at all what the mechanism behind superconductivity is at all. And, uh, well, eventually, um, Bardeen, Cooper, and Schriefer wrote down a um, theory that made a new change of paradigms. And then suddenly people realized, okay, now it's really, you know, we, we understood the essence. Uh, but even in that field, um, the years following the elementary theory, 
um, refined theories came came along and uh, actually building upon the uh, progress that Bardeen, Cooper and Schrieffer have made, um, a complete toolbox was developed that was at least in principle, it's not super easy to apply either, but if you want, you can apply it and get uh, more and more precise predictions. And I think that's really what we are lacking right now. So we would like to have a toolbox um, that we can apply, at least in principle, even if it's hard, um, to make predictions and make them you know, increasingly more accurate. Um, and yeah, that's what we're looking for, I believe. And what's the relation between uh, what? What are the different roles played between theory and experiment in this um, in this research? Or, you know, in, mm -hmm. in the Hubbard model explorations, and how do they complement each other, and how do they address different parts of the of the issue? Yeah, so that's um, a very special actually in this field. Um, so when, of course, high temperature superconductivity was. Um, found experimentally much to the surprise of theorists so theorists at the, uh, in those days um, actually had uh, universal bounds based on their understanding of conventional superconductivity that told them that uh, temper uh, you know superconductivity beyond a certain temperature is not you know, should not be possible at all given our physical limitations and then um, these materials came along and it was clear that something interesting is, is going on something beyond what's been understood and then I think uh, the same year um, when this or the next year when high temperature superconductors were found in the lab there was um, this famous March meeting um, it's called the uh, Woodstock of, of Physics uh, where the uh, you know there was a session through the entire night where theorists and experimentalists discussed their different theories and understanding of um, what had been discovered and there was was a feeling that this is not such uh, maybe hard problem and of course everyone was amazed but I from what you read about the time, uh, many people were confident that it could be solved quite soon. Um, but then it turned out to be a real, you know, um, difficult problem. And um, theorists became more and more creative, I would say. And um, actually, many, many ideas were proposed that uh, seemed really pretty crazy. And um, especially also, I think many theorists were um, a little bit detached from experiments. Um, and then also in the early days, um, experimentally, um, it was not super easy. They did not have all the techniques that we have today. And so, you know, many things they were not, evil, not able to easily check. Um, and, and especially many of the predictions of these theories were so far from direct experimental quantities that it was really hard to, um, you know, to, to probe them. And this actually led to two interesting um, developments. One was that the experimentalists over time got a little bit detached from theory. So um, they did their own things and did their own analysis, improved their um, tools and um, um, their machines uh, to amazing standards today. So now the quality of the data is, is really, really great. There's a ton of literature about all kinds of um, material compounds um, related to high temperature superconductivity but also other materials, of course. Um, and in theory as well, um, all these very creative and interesting ideas, even if they, uh, in the end, many of them turn out not to directly apply to high temperature superconductivities, or who knows, I mean, we don't know, right? But they actually led to to this, They, I, in my view, they really opened this whole field of strongly correlated quantum materials and exotic things like quantum spin liquids and so on that are uh, actively explored today. In a little bit different context, maybe, but it certainly taught us a great deal about what types of materials can exist, at least as a matter of principle. 
Um, and so this was basically a little bit of history, I think. Nowadays, well, I think theory and experiments seem to be growing closer together again. Um, also the numerical advances I talked about um, contribute, of course, because now um, theorists can actually make predictions that you can check experimentally. So at least the models become more and more realistic and our you know, numerical power is, is bigger. Um, that helped a lot. Um, and, and then there are also developments like um, ultra-cold atoms or these quantum simulation um, ideas. And um, these machines have also made great progress. So um, we have seen this the physics of the um, what we call half-filled case when there's one particle per lattice site in the Hubbard model. Uh, we have seen what happens if you dope these systems. Um, and one hallmark, I think, of these ultra-cold atom experiments is really that they can look in so much detail that it's quite easy for them to talk um, about um, details and discuss with, with theorists about such details. Um, so um, that's, I think, a new front where lots of progress is being made. Um, uh, one should say that these quantum simulation experiments... Um, they are still not cold enough to see many of the properties that um, people usually working in the field of high-temperature superconductivity would be interested in because they, they really happen at, at uh, extremely low energies. And um, the, so the current temperatures are simply too, still too high in these cold atom systems, measured on relative scales, of course. Um, and yeah, so there's way to go. But um, I think... Yeah, the fields are growing closer together and um, I do hope that lots of insights will come out of these um, different types of experiments and in the end clarify what's going on. Mm. This um, this does just make me wonder, um, there's very few experimentalist theorists in the world. Um, really, just you can kind of count them on the number of one hand. So uh, knowing that you're, you're a kind of person who knows a lot about a lot of things, um, is this something that you'd be interested in the future to maybe, for example, one of the cold atom experiments you were mentioning, would you, would you be interested at some point to get a lab? <laughs> uh, to be honest, no. I mean, the, these labs, mm -hmm. um, they require a huge amount of expertise, right? Of course, mm -hmm. it would be amazing to have such a machine at, at uh, my hand, but um, no, I mean, it's in, in the cold atom system, it, it, it's not realistic to do both uh, at the highest levels at the same time, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but, but, but of course, I think collaborations with experimentalists are extremely important and valuable. Um, and yeah. th those I, I really want to continue having, of course. Yeah. But one should also say really that these cold atom experiments have developed from, you know, tabletop pretty much to, well, now it's still it's tables, but, uh, you know, the labs are pretty big and you need several students to really run them. Um, the same is true also for, uh, you know, of course, high-end spectroscopy machines in solid state, um, for sure. Yeah. yeah, which is still much smaller than particle accelerators, right? That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, and and if you if you could start again, kind of, and you can take this in in different stages of of your career, um, what what would you what would you choose to work on? Would it be still the same thing, or maybe if you were choosing between physics and chemistry, was it always clear that you would study physics, um, <laughs> or Maybe would you now choose something different or, yeah. yeah also no. taking into account, of course, that 
things have progressed since then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would always do what I did again. I mean, in, in, it became clear, I think, in high school that I wanted to do theoretical physics. Uh, I never changed or regretted that plan, and I would still do exactly that. Um, of course, when I started being interested in physics, I was also wondering a lot about let's say the big universe questions like what's you know what are the origins of the universe what's the what's in the end what's the quantum gravity what's the theory that um, holds everything together um, and I drifted away from that quickly um, but I'm really also happy about that because um, you know it's it's very fulfilling to think about problems that are related to actual materials for example and experiments that you can see in the lab um, likewise of course i still think these big questions are super interesting and who knows you know one can still get back to them to them eventually um no i would do all the same i think um also the types of, of um, physical problems i was studying in my career they uh, they taught me um, all these things where i'm now and um yeah i would uh, totally follow that route again Great. Uh, yeah, that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Um, and maybe start, uh, going going from there, what would be the counsel that you have for people who are maybe not so sure yet what they should be working on? Maybe, you know, yeah. students in high school or maybe undergrads who are thinking of where they should do a master's or their PhD in. Yeah, exactly. So I would uh, just recommend uh, follow your heart and follow what's interesting and do what you, what fulfills you. And, um, yeah, so that's also the lesson I really learned from my experience that I, you know, I, I, I worked on problems that I liked and if sometimes problems came up that I was not so much interested in, and then I also turned to other problems again. And I think that's extremely important. So especially in research, you have to be creative and, um, this means you have to be, um, you know, um, happy really and and motivated and 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 for me this only works if all the surroundings um work right and so yeah follow your follow your heart and follow your interests um, that's the main recommendation i would give is that the same recommendation that you would give if you if you could really give one piece of advice to current researchers current phd or postdoc students um, who are not so well established yet uh, would you keep that as the one piece of advice, or would you would you choose something maybe different about yeah. going or being? No, I think I would, would keep that. Of course, uh, once you get into questions like what's what are the best strategies to pursue a career in academia and so on, of course there are more refined advices one should give. Um, there, of course, um, it matters to have connections. It matters to work on the right problems at the right time. Sometimes it matters to be a bit fast on a certain paper or publication. Um, so, you know, of course you can, those things are also important, but, um, the big, big picture, I think still you, you have to follow your interests. Yeah. And uh, could you, could you explain some of these things you just said a bit more in detail? Like, what do you mean with, um, being fast in some projects and, uh, yeah, uh, right. So, um, I mean, of course, um, academia is organized in a competitive way, right? So, um, we, um, we compete to find the coolest things, if you if you wish, and we compete on m multiple levels. We compete for best publications. We compete for um, most funding um, for for research grants, for example. And um, yeah, of course, this means you have to um, um, deliver basically. And 
Um, yeah, so, it's, you know, it's definitely true that sometimes um, ideas come out of conferences, for example, and, and then everyone sort of knows, okay, this idea is out there now, right? And um, it's especially exciting if a new field is just um, opened. Um, those are, of course, milestone papers. So let's say, let's say um, some milestone paper suggests a new type of um, phenomenon or so. Um, everyone knows about it. The conferences, you can tell it's, there's lots of talks about this new direction. And this typically means that um, all of a sudden, many of the researchers have started to think in one particular direction um, with what, of course, in mind what, with what they have researched on before. Um, and this typically means that uh, we, we also sometimes call them low-hanging fruit, right? So you, you basically um, immediately see that uh, some of the, um, there are some obvious things to combine now and make progress um, in, in this new direction. And um, so in these cases, it's particularly important, I think, to move quickly and also um, publish um, something in this direction. Because that's, you know, if you publish on a field that's currently attracting lots of interest, that's what gives you citations and that uh, that's what makes you um, recognized in the field. That said, of course, that's not the only thing that matters, right? It's not, it's not all about publicity and so on, but you also cannot do completely without it either, right? So um, because we are a, um, a community and um, so, you know, we all try to advertise um, the things we're interested in, right? In, in a very positive way, of course. But um, sometimes you have to try to make some impact, right? And yeah. So it sounds a bit like you um, uh, advocate working uh, within uh, the current possible bubbles. Um, but do you think it's possible to pursue directions of research which are not part of kind of current bubbles and know that they are um, valid directions for research or do you think it maybe just is safer to um, to go with what's currently trending uh-huh. no of um, course I think working outside these bubbles that's that's the real deal why we want to do it right I mean ultimately mm -hmm. we want to discover new things and within the bubbles we basically there's lots of work to be done interesting work important work uh, but ultimately if we want to find qualitatively new things we have to go outside the bubbles right um, and that's um, so basically, I, I would say you, what you want is you want to be in, in a um, like uh, well in a good position um, to be able to afford to do lots of research outside of your bubbles, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so that means if you have enough money to, uh, I mean research money, I mean you know and uh, good people, good collaborations um, that allow you to spend significant time to search for really new effects outside the current bubbles. That's the ideal situation. But of course, those are high-risk, high-gain um, projects typically, right? Because if you search into the dark, it's less um, clear precisely which path you should take. Um, and so, the, um, for example, this ERC starting grant, um, that's um, one of the grants that um, especially um, um, you know, supports high-risk, high-gain projects. And um, of course, the goal is always then to go outside your bubble. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I mean, people always say high risk, high gain, but high risk also means that you might lose big. So, um, so what's, what's the role of that in, in research? Do you think so? Is failure important or does failure happen? And what's the experience you had with that personally? 
Now, did everything always work out that you tried? No, of course not. Not everything works out. But a good um, supervisor and a good PI, I think, um, always has has a plan how to proceed. And so, of course, that's um, always the case for also for these high-risk, high-game projects. So um, there's a clear path. And uh, when, especially when you write a grant proposal, of course, you know... Um, what type of research you want to do and you in your mind you already know that if this works you're going to proceed in that way if that doesn't work you're going to proceed more or less in this way and so you 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 know there's a sort of a mind map underlying all these proposals that clearly um put a path forward right it's not um i mean if if there's an option to really completely fail then you did something wrong and that research should not be funded so there should always be clear rooms um where to um, push forward um and so that's certainly true. Now, um, regarding the question uh, about personal or my own failures, um, now, of course, each project you push into a certain direction and you try out things. And many things don't work, but it's the, the things that do work in the end that matter. And so, um, yeah, of course, I think, I mean, there are relatively few examples where I would say I put extremely much effort into a project that really went nowhere in the end. Um, and that should be rare, right? So you should, because you, as you proceed in a project, you should be able to see some progress and that should um, tell you if it's worth continuing or not, right? But I can also say that it's, um, sometimes it's a question of also patience, right? So I remember in my PhD, I had a project and we did some calculation somewhat complicated um, and there was a result it didn't really look like the results other people had before but it also included more interactions so we were not certain and so well, the results were more or less lying around we were not super sure yet if whether all the results were totally sound or whether we could trust the approximations we made um, fully and then one day I, I saw an archive a paper um, they had a quantum Monte Carlo simulation so a numerically exact um I looked at the curve. It obviously, it was the same type of problem, and I immediately recognized the curve. And um, then I, I realized, okay, wow, this method we have actually is extremely accurate. And so I did the comparison, and they pretty much uh, were lying on top of each other. And so um, then, you know, the patience um, not to push this out immediately, but um, also wait a little bit and um, publish it then and um, have, you know, be able to, to make this reference to this new numerical work that paid off um, tremendously. Um, and in that case, we also, from this semi-analytical method we had, we also learned more about um, the Monte Carlo data that the other group published. And um, so that was a really a, a cool story in the end. Um, but without patience, it's hard, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of torn between two questions. Um, uh, one, what you know, is there something that you would have liked to know or is there something that you feel at some point you didn't know which would have been very, very useful um, information, maybe, for example, of culture and how to how to navigate um, culture and science or something like this or, you know, related to your experiences or um, or what is the luckiest what is the luckiest event which happened um, during your uh, life in, in research and science? OK. Um, something I wanted to know about. Um, so in the sense of, um, yeah, I guess, was there anything I wish I would have known earlier? I, um, <laughs> that's the only type of question I can answer now, right? Um, 
that I know now, but I didn't know at the time. So, um, I don't know. I, I always, I always liked, um, not to worry too much about, um, the future. Right. I mean, I, uh, I'm uh, I didn't plan my career from uh, scratch from day one and had to follow a given plan. Right. So somehow one thing naturally led to the other and, the one thing that led me there was the always the curiosity and the interest in the research I was doing and um, and the ideas that just followed one after the other. So I think, in my view, that's the um, that's the key to a successful career. That you know you the um, research itself has to be going well, and then things proceed. Um, so in that sense, I would say. No, and maybe even this um, not knowing all the um, the also the ugly parts um, that you know you encounter in a career, not only in academia but everywhere, that was probably good. That um, these things just happened and came along, and and then you um, you know you master those um, problems as well, and those challenges that that lie on the way, and uh, those are always different for everyone, right? Um, and um of course i think i mean maybe it's always useful to uh, talk to more experienced um, people and um, listen to advice they share about how best to proceed for example how to to get um, grant money how to write a grant proposal and um, there's some learning curve of course you have to climb so but of course, there. I, I mean, yeah, one has to reach out to to, to more experienced researchers, and um, that typically helped. I'm not. I'm not sure there's any single aspect I could single out where I would say that's something I would have liked to know before. Good. And so the the qu second question about was about the luck. Any the luckiest thing in in research uh, career. Um. Well, I don't know this example I described before uh, with this um, calculation we had that then suddenly matched these Monte Carlo. That was certainly lucky, but um, in the end, I think the most um, luck you need is in, in also getting the right collaborators. To be honest, and um, you have to meet the, the right people um, and find um, find those people you can work with productively and um, also on a personal level. Of course, there are some. You know, you you can't work equally well with everyone. That's just a fact. Um, not only in academia, of course. Um, and so, having a field of of close collaborators, where you know those are the people with whom you can um, discuss very productively and um, explore new ideas. That's, I think, the really one of the most important things that brings you forward. Yeah. So, uh, talking about close collaborators, um, you are also working quite closely with your wife, who's also a physicist. Is there something you want to share about what um, what advantages that brings? <laughs> yes, well, of course, I always have someone to discuss with. Um, that's amazing. Um, we discuss, the, you know, the, the, and there's always, a, it's, it's a critical voice. Um, so, I, you know, she, she, she has critical comments for me. Uh, I can have critical comments for her research as well. Um, and I think the further you progress, Sometimes it's um, it gets a bit less, right? So, for example, uh, my own PhD students, I always, uh, of course, encourage them to be, but also master students and so on, to encourage I encourage them to be 
um, you know, to voice critical comments and so on. But uh, the reality is that it's uh, the more the students are um, dependent on their supervisors, the harder it becomes, right? And of course, it's not a discrete curve. It's a smooth uh, crossover. But that's certainly something that's extremely helpful if you have um, a uh, collaborator you know as well uh, over so many years as I, as, as I know my wife now. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, that's an amazing thing, of course. So being a group leader now and collaboration as well as motivation being very important to you and wanting to share that with your students, uh, how how are you able to share that with them and do you encourage them to work together mainly or to mainly stay on on topics, on separate topics? Ah, yeah. Well, um, well of course, one important aspect I think is positive feedback. So I try to, to give that where I can. Um, you can't only give positive feedback, of course. Sometimes, um, you know, factual critique has to be uh, voiced. Um, so um, it's, uh, that's always a balance act you have to master, right? But I think, um, well, I try to tell them as much as possible that I went through the same learning curves back in the days. Everyone does. And um, yeah, so also I think it's uh, when I give feedback, I always try to highlight the the very good parts and just to make sure um, the students know how to, you know, uh, proceed and which steps to follow and how to improve. Um, yeah, regarding collaboration, I think this is also, at, and that's also my personal experience, a huge um a very important point that if you work in a team, for most people, that's uh, much more um, inspiring than working alone. Of course, there are exceptions and everyone has their own uh, way of, of working, but um, working a team is, is good. Now, uh, on the other hand, of course, as a PI, you can just say everyone works with everyone because that's uh, this leads to utter chaos. So what I try to do in most cases is have, you know, two or three people or so on a project and um, I always also try to um, have people have their main uh, pro projects and their main research focuses, and but also make sure that they have a certain um, um, knowledge, at least basic knowledge of the, the other fields my group is working on also. And of course, this goes through uh, group seminars and so on, uh, but also sharing paper drafts among the group that one member would write. I think like mm -hmm. this, I think help tremendously um, to foster exchange and also to make sure that um, if one member has a or one student has a um, challenging physical problem um, they're facing or even a personal problem whatever uh, that they go and ask their peers and ask you know for advice um, and like this new ideas can can come along and progress can be made and and uh, challenging problem pr problems can be overcome. Mm. Uh, so yeah, those are the strategies. What do you look for when you select a PhD student? Um, well, motivation is a great, uh, is of great importance to me. Um, also, well, sometimes it matters. Or I am interested, of course, in students um, who already have certain experience working on a certain field. If I want to, especially if I want to, you know, push a certain project, it, it can be advantages if they have experience using either numerics or some analytic tools. Um, also, when I know um, students um, that I've worked with before, that's extremely uh, useful. So you know that's uh, a good um, basis for, for collaboration. I guess we're closing in on, on, on the end of this chat. So is there something you want to 
say still, which kind of came came to your mind along the way um, that you wanted to share with people that maybe didn't get raised? One thing that's super important to me is uh, the motivation, right? And and so the, I mean, that's what I really can rec recommend to everyone. Don't um, lose the motivation. And if you do, then, you know, make adjustments to be motivated again. Um, especially in academia, you know, we have to be creative. So it's uh, sometimes one has to change fields a little bit or change um, the surrounding, change the environment a little bit. And this can help it tremendously to um, gain, you know, bring you back to full steam basically and um, be fully motivated. Um, and that's also actually what I, in, in my own research group, what I try to do as much as possible to motivate all my group members. And I think they, you know, they really deserve it. Everyone deserves to be motivated to do what they're doing. And um, that's a huge driving force. I mean, it's maybe this is um, a stupid tip, but it's also um, a technique that, that of course, is, is used on, on a bigger level, right? So there's the story of uh, Richard Feynman when he was working in Los Alamos and building the first atomic bomb. And um, so basically uh, the story was that, you know, they had to do some difficult compu computations back in the days. They didn't have computers yet, so... They basically had employees who were um, doing calculations, but these people didn't uh, know um, what they were doing. They they knew it was somehow secret, but they had no idea what precisely they were uh, working on and, and calculating. They were just you know crunching numbers. And um, eventually, Feynman uh, thought it wasn't proceeding fast enough, and um, he decided to I think more or less tell them, uh, look, you know, we're 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 basically potentially winning this war and ending this war. And um, and he said that uh, following that, um, things were going twice as fast. And I think, um, so, of course, it's a controversial topic with the atomic bomb project and so on. But I'm, I'm certainly glad that this war ended. And, um, you know, the, the story that this particular story teaches you is that motivation is really such a huge driving force. And um, so that's what we have to, to uphold and um, follow. Wow, um, thank you very much. That was a um, very, very interesting chat for, for me and I think Alex as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very interesting and I hope it was also a bit interesting for the listeners. Um, and yeah, so thanks a lot for coming. Thanks a lot for joining and uh, for telling us about your plans and your experiences. And Yeah, yeah. happy to. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Before we send you off into the day or night, we wanted to introduce our Human of Physics of the Day. This is going to be the first of many short recounts on the lives of scientists. We hope to dispel some stereotypes about physicists and open a window so that scientific outreach can be sometimes also about the scientists, their hopes and anxieties in the context of their science. Felipe Montenegro sets his alarm up a little bit early to check his favorite internet outlets before getting up to check the archive while eating his bowl of cereals. Archive.org is a website where physicists share their research papers when they hand them in for review. This makes results sharing a lot faster as the review process can take a whole year. The rest of Felipe's day proceeds in what he calls math mode. 
calculating frantically with his headphones on, with the length of the day determined how well this activity works out.